number 10. This morning, uh, Brother Mike uh, sent a message while I was working and obviously informed me that he's sick and asked if I could fill in, so that's what we'll do tonight. Obviously, we enjoy studying the book of Revelation, and it's a wonderful series. I think we're getting close to chapter 11 now, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, when you're asked to fill in, you, if it's just one sermon, you want to, you know, be prepared or choose a subject that's going to be beneficial to the body, and you have to try to get it all in just to one sermon. So uh, that's the task, you know, to do when you're asked to fill in. And uh, this today, I thought of uh, the notes here that I will be presenting. And then, uh, interestingly, when I was out of the route, I had a breakdown. And then after the route, I had to work on the breakdown. And then while I was working on the breakdown, I had to go to the town to buy parts for the car. So I was telling Bev tonight, I might not be preaching, I might just be reading to you. But nevertheless, we'll do the best that we can, and I hope that this will be beneficial for us tonight. But in Isaiah chapter 10, we'll be focusing a little bit on verses 5 through 16. It will not be a full exposition of the passage, but... We'll examine some of the details of the passage in order to just get a glimpse of the relationship between God's sovereignty and human actions. And that's really what we want to study tonight, is that relationship that's oftentimes uh, mysterious to us because we are finite creatures. And it's something that we cannot understand completely, but there is enough data, you should say, you could say in scripture, to give us at least a proper understanding of these things. All of us, I'm sure, would, uh, in this church building tonight, would refer to ourselves as Christians. And we would, uh, we would not back down with uh, accepting the term biblicists, meaning we, just, we profess to believe whatever the Bible says and whatever the Bible teaches. When talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation and subjects like election and free will... Um, all people who call themselves biblicists would fall into a couple different categories, we could say. And so let me just review these with us. Some Christians would fall into the camp of what we would call Calvinism or Augustinianism. And when these people uh, would refer to themselves as Calvinists, they would not be saying they are Calvinians, meaning they are not saying that they disagree with everything John Calvin taught, but they're talking about a certain theological belief. And uh, the name John Calvin is attached, you know, from the 1500s to Protestant Reformer because he expounded these things so well. But the term Augustinianism, that goes back to Aurelius Augustine, uh, a 5th century church father who also was really well known for teaching on this subject. But it seems to me, as, as at least as I study scripture, that this theological position known as Calvinism or Augustinianism is really um, the best system that we have concerning this subject that is derived right from scripture. I think it does not go to the left or to the right. Uh, you would go too far to the left, you would be what's called a high Calvinist or a hyper Calvinist. And that is, you would acknowledge God's sovereignty, but you would deny, in many cases, human responsibility. So you can be a little imbalanced there. Uh, it's possible that um, one might not want to be called a Calvinist or an Augustinian because they don't like the name attaching to them. Uh, if that's the case, the term monergism would be another term that one could use. Uh, that just comes from a, a Greek, that's a Greek compound word. 
mono means one or alone, and ergos means work. So when you talk about monergism, it's the belief that regeneration is the work of God alone. And so monergism, Calvinism, Augustinianism, that's really part of the teaching. Regeneration is the work of God alone. Now on the other side, you have what theologically is referred to as Arminianism. This is also called uh, semi-Pelagianism. Now, Arminianism comes from the name James Arminius, who uh, was uh, a teacher in the late 1500s, early 1600s. And uh, those who are Arminians follow a lot of his teaching. Pelagius was another early church teacher from the 4th and 5th centuries. And he taught very aberrant doctrine and basically denied God's work in salvation at all. And I won't get into all the details of that tonight. But semi-Pelagianism takes some of his teachings, and in many ways, semi-Pelagianism is Arminianism. Another term you could use for this group is synergism. That comes from another compound Greek word. Syn means together with. Ergos means work. So when you talk about synergism, you're talking about man and God cooperating together in the initiation of faith. That is man and God working together. Now, Arminians would believe that we are saved through faith alone in Christ, but they would say that faith that is exercised is a work of both God and man together, so synergism. Now, if you are a Calvinist or a monergist, uh, then you would also, or I should say it's also important to focus on what is called compatibilism. Compatibilism. Now, Calvinism, like I said here, is you could say right on the road. Hyper-Calvinism goes up one side, Arminianism goes up another side, where they recognize the importance of man's decision-making. But again, they deny the sovereignty of God in many areas as well. But compatibilism is something that is very important, and that's what we'll focus on, the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's will. How many of you here have heard of the theological term determinism? Have you ever heard of that word? Determinism. Some of you Determinism is the belief that all events that take place in time were preordained or predestined to take place in eternity past. That is determinism. That's part of a Calvinistic theology. Compatibilism is a form of determinism, which understands that divine sovereignty is compatible with human freedom. In other words, God's eternal decree does not destroy cause and effect relationships. We make real choices that have real consequences. The freedom of the creature is not destroyed. He is not externally coerced into decisions or actions. Their actions are both free and predestined. That's the claim we're making tonight. Man's choices are both free and Predestined. The decisions we make, the actions that we perform take place because we want to make the decisions and we want to perform the actions. Yet, these decisions and actions were predetermined by God so that scripture says that they must happen. So this is really a great wonder, brethren. God leaves men free in this sense, yet he also predestines everything that man, that every man will ever do. Both truths are presented to us in Scripture. 
Let me read to you for a moment from the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, which basically affirms what I've just said. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby, yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. So here you have these 17th century Baptists affirming God's sovereignty, affirming God's eternal decree, while at the same time affirming man's decision-making in his life and throughout his life, and much more. But this is historic Reformed theology, faithfully derived from Scripture. Now as we look at Isaiah chapter 10, we'll look at briefly at verses 5 through 16, I think that you will see compatibilism there, both God's sovereign control and man's free decision-making. And if you are ever talking to another believer who struggles with these concepts, Isaiah chapter 10 is a wonderful passage to take them to, to kind of help try to gain an understanding of these things. Now I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 to begin with. We read here, O Assyrian, this is God talking, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation. And against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now notice here that God is calling the Assyrian to come against Israel and that he will send this king and all of his army against whom he calls an hypocritical nation and the people of my wrath. Now understand at this point in history, the Assyrian nation had risen to be the most powerful nation in the world. They were also very cruel and thoroughly pagan. Yet God is calling them to come against Israel as the rod of my anger and as the staff in their hand, he says, is my indignation. Now notice a few things here. Number one, this would have been a rebuke to Israel. God's chosen people they were, yet they were, are referred to as a hypocritical nation. The northern kingdom by this time was thoroughly apostate, and the southern kingdom also had many problems as well. So it was a rebuke that God would not only allow, but think about this, commission the Assyrians, an evil nation, to come and punish his people Israel, because God was angry with them for their sin. They are called the people of my wrath. Secondly, also notice, in God's providence, he would control the judgment as it is carried out by the king of Assyria and his army. Notice he says in these verses, I will send him. And notice he says, I give him a charge. So you see God's sovereignty over this whole situation. Now, in light of that, consider some of the scriptural teaching that we have throughout the Bible concerning God's sovereignty. First of all, I'm just going to give you a list of verses here as we consider this. Consider how God, first of all, number one, has an eternal plan. 
2 Timothy 1.9 says this, that grace was given to those of us who would be saved according to God's purpose, it says, before the world began. So God had an eternal plan concerning our salvation. In Matthew 25.34, it says the kingdom was prepared for believers from the foundation of the world. Secondly, we see that God has foreordained all things that come to pass, even down to minute details. Consider Psalm 139, verse 16, which says, In thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. So every detail about you personally, before you were even born, was already written in God's book. He already foreordained your life. Even our salvation. Acts 13, 48. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. It's not that they were ordained because they believed. It's they believed because they were ordained. Romans 9, 23 speaks of the vessels of mercy, which he had before prepared unto glory. So our lives were foreordained. Our salvation is foreordained. Also, our good works are foreordained. Listen to Ephesians 2.10. Speaks of our good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. But not only this, the sinful acts of men are foreordained. Listen to Amos chapter 3, verse 6. God asks, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it. That is, there's a battle, there's an attack, there's a war, and in this battle, you have the sinful hearts of men. I'm not saying there's no such thing as righteous war, there is. But in unrighteous war, you have the attacks, you have the sinful desires coming out, but God is sovereign over all of it. Matthew 21, 42, Jesus said concerning the builders, rejecting the cornerstone, rejecting him, which is evil. He said, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous. In our eyes. The rejection of Jesus by these sinful men was according to God's plan. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 6, which we're at, remember it says, God ordained, or God commissioned, I should say, these Assyrians to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. They would come in there, the Assyrians, against the Israelites and slaughter these people with unrighteous motives. But God was in control of it all. Also, chance happenings are ordained by God. Listen to Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Fixed events are ordained by God. John 8.20. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him. Why? For his hour was not yet come. God had preordained exactly when Jesus would die, exactly how he would die, and it wasn't going to be here. The men could not kill him because God had ordained it as so. So many examples we can see in Scripture. We've just given a small list to show how God is absolutely sovereign, and all that takes place in time does so according to his unchanging and providential plan. That's why, you know, in language, I, I always make fun of the word lucky. Years ago, Christians did not say, I got lucky. They might have said, providence is so allowed it. You know, they recognized God's sovereignty over 
all things. So here in Isaiah 10, though, the actions of the Assyrians would also take place according to God's purpose, because God can act even through sinful pagans in order to accomplish his perfect will. Now, how is this done? How can God act through sinful human beings to accomplish his will? Well, again, I want to give you a little bit of a list here. Think about this. Number one, all the acts of people proceed from God's power. That's a biblical teaching. Acts 17.28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Also, the elect, that is believers, are guided by God's Spirit in sanctification. You know, after we are converted, after we are regenerated, and after we exercise faith in Christ, as we go through this process of sanctification, as we pursue Christ's likeness, we can do that because of God's power now working through us. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But here in Isaiah chapter 10 with the Assyrians, we see that God impels and directs the wicked according as he thinks fit, and does so in a very peculiar manner. Although nothing could be further from their thoughts, God is using the agency of the Assyrians to chastise his rebellious people, Israel. John Calvin wrote this, All the strength which the enemy shall possess proceeds from the wrath of God, and they are moved by his secret impulse to destroy the people, for otherwise he would not move a finger. In other words, why are they doing what they're doing? Because of God's providential plan. Whether therefore we are attacked by tyrants or robbers or any other person, or foreign nations rise up against us, let us always plainly see the hand of God amidst the greatest agitation and confusion, and let us not suppose that anything happens by chance. So that's the case here in Isaiah. Now look at verse 7 in Isaiah chapter 10, moving on. Referring now to the Assyrian. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. In other words, the Assyrian here is totally ignorant of the fact that he is actually performing God's sovereign purpose. It says here, neither does his heart think so. His motive is not to bring the righteous judgment of Yahweh upon the people of Israel. But what is his motive? What's the motive of the king and his army? To destroy and to cut off nations. So think about this. One action, two different motives. God's, act, God's plan is righteous judgment. The Assyrians' plan is sinful, and they have the sinful desire to destroy and to slaughter. So you see here that there's compatibilism. Theologically speaking, this is compatibilism. Divine sovereignty is compatible with human freedom. Human actions are both free and predestined. God's sovereign decree does not destroy the free actions of man. To clarify, to say that a person is able to do good or evil is not the same as saying that a man is at liberty to do what he desires. There's a difference there. See the difference? Say it again. 
To say that a person is able to do good or evil is not the same as saying that man is at liberty to do what he desires. The natural unregenerate man has the liberty, but not the ability to do what is right, do good. Romans 8, 7 through 8. He is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. Can is a word of ability. It's not a word of permission. He cannot obey God's law. He cannot do what pleases God. John 8, 43. Jesus says, Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. So even as we're out preaching, brethren, when we're preaching, we understand the lost cannot hear it to the saving of their soul. Unless there's a miracle of grace. Because of the sinful nature. The unregenerate want to do evil with the entire absence of external coercion. God did not have to coerce the Assyrians to have evil intentions when they attacked Israel. Because of their fallen nature, evil actions is what they desire to perform. So we see in verse 7 that the intentions of the Assyrians were sinful. Now look at the pride of the Assyrian king in verses 8 through 10. For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kalno as Carchemish? Is not Hamath as Arpat? Is not Samaria as Damascus? As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria. Notice, he may be saying this to his people, he may be saying this to his enemies, he may be saying this to himself, but we see here the great arrogance and pride of this king. It reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar before his chastisement and grace. Listen to what he said in Daniel 4.30. As he walked in the palace, he says, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Much the same here. The Assyrian brags in verse 8 that his princes under him are the same as the glory of the kings of other nations. So he's saying, My princes are... Just like kings, and of course, that means I'm above everybody. Now, the different places here that are mentioned, Kalno is probably the Kalneh that's mentioned in Genesis 10.10. 10. It's also mentioned in Amos chapter 6 and verse 2 as a strong city. Carchemish is a city upon the Euphrates River. You can see that in 2 Chronicles 35. It's called Carchemish by Euphrates. Hamath was a city of Syria, and um, it was not... It was also called Hamath or Hamath the Great, and you can see that in different passages of Scripture as well in Amos and 2 Kings. And then finally, Arpad seems to have been an obscure place. It's nowhere mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. But the point of the king, of the king is that he can take the place of, of anything he wants to. That's what he's saying. The graven images, their gods, could do nothing to stop him. And then he blasphemes God in verse number 10. He says, just as he's done to all the other idols, he can do the same to Israel. In fact, their idols excel those of Jerusalem. Now, notice a few things. Number one, he exalts himself above God. That's just his pride. Just as the idols could not keep, keep him from conquering a certain place, neither could the God of Israel. By exalting himself above every so-called their object of worship, even though they were false deities, he then compares it to the one true God, and he thinks as if he was God himself. 
Secondly, you notice here in this verse, he sees the idols of the nations as being greater than any god that the Jews worshipped. And this is where it really gets annoying. Kind of reminds me of a lot of leftists. Uh, it's, there's a great arrogance mixed with ignorance. And when you mix those together, it just is grinding sometimes. So you need to exercise patience. Because we could we'd be there as well, right? But you see that here. Because he's so arrogant to exalt himself above God. But he doesn't even realize the difference between the God of Israel and the idols of the other nations. He includes God with the other so-called gods. Now look at verse 11. Shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? So he continues with these arrogant words. It is possible that the words of verses 8 through 10 refer to that of the king Salamanazar. Uh, he was one of the Assyrian kings who conquered Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel. Then in verse 11, there could be a shift here referring to the next king of Assyria, that was Sennacherib, who later came to Jerusalem to take it, but God would not allow him to do so. So that's why Jerusalem here would be mentioned. But again, either way, you see the pride, the arrogance, the motives, desiring to satisfy his own lusts, enlarging his empire, fulfilling his ambitions, and murdering multitudes of people. That is his desire. Now look at verses 12 through 14. Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruits of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he saith, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people and have robbed their treasuries, and I have put down their inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. So we see his arrogance. First of all, we see his desire. What's his desire again? Just to expand his kingdom. I have removed the bounds of the people. That's his desire. I'm going to expand my kingdom. And secondly, he gives himself all the credit. By the strength of my hand, he says... I have removed, I have put down the inhabitants, I am prudent, I am a valiant man, I, 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 he says. He compares himself to taking eggs out of a nest. Either no bird there to stop him, or the bird can just flap its wings but could do nothing. So in other words, he's saying, nobody can do anything against me. But you notice in verse 12, God would bring judgment to him. Notice it says, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria. In light of this, I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 36. So just turn ahead a few chapters, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 20, where this king of Assyria comes now. He's in the southern kingdom, and he comes to Jerusalem to take it. Notice his words. And actually, these are the words of Rabshakeh. This was a messenger of Sennacherib, the king. Beware, he says, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hands of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraphim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem 
out of my hand. So you notice here the great arrogance. Now look at chapter 37 at the judgment, verses 34 through 38. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city, and save it for my own sake, and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went forth, and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, and went and returned, and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch his god, that Adramelech and Sarazer his sons smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia. And it goes on. So you notice there the pride, the arrogance, and then finally the judgment that fell upon them. Now notice again here in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 12. It says, When the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. That's when God completes the work of chastening his people through the Assyrians, the Assyrian would be judged for his own pride and for his own blasphemy. Now, it's at this point that there are many people who would object and say, that is simply not fair. God used him. God was sovereign over the situation. God said in verse 6, I will send him. I give him a charge. He's the rod of my anger. It's not fair that he would be judged then by God afterwards. He did not know any better, some would say. But reality is this. No one is ever judged as to how they fit into God's eternal plan. In other words, you might have some object. You might have some unbelievers who are debating you, saying, well, if you believe that God is sovereign, you believe that God predestines all things that come to pass, I'm an unbeliever. If I go to hell, it's God's fault because he predetermined it so. That displays a great ignorance in the Bible. No one in the Bible is ever judged as to how they fit into God's eternal plan. Because the, the unbeliever can't say, God cannot judge against God and rebelled against him time after time after time and might be declared throughout all the earth. See, both are true. God ordained to use Pharaoh for his glory, even the judgment of Pharaoh. But Pharaoh is not judged because of God's predetermined plan. He's judged because of the sinful desires of his own heart and for his sinful actions. The king of Assyria thought that he was superior to all, yet God opposed him. First he made use of his agency, and then God punishes him for his evil intentions, and God can do that. Sinful rebels against God, God can use them for his purposes and then judge them for their evil intentions. The Assyrian thought that he was as God himself. But while committing his atrocities, he was actually being used by God to carry out his will. The very God that he blasphemed used him as an axe, this passage says. Look at verse 15. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up. Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood. Notice, the king is called an axe, a saw, a rod, and a staff. All compared to this king. God can compare this man to an inanimate object. 
None of them are exactly like each other here, but they all agree with the same points. The point is, we cannot do one thing or the other without being moved by providence and the secret decree of God. So this comparison is used. It's foolish and unreasonable for an inanimate object to boast as if it was in control of itself or as if it is not a piece of wood, a staff. The Assyrian was being just as foolish as the axe that would boast. It is the same as the clay questioning the potter in Romans chapter 9. The axe cannot boast, and the wicked king must be judged for his evil motives, his evil plans, his evil actions. Let me quote again from Calvin. Quote, if God controls the purposes of men and turns their thoughts and exertions to whatever purposes he pleases, men do not therefore cease to form plans and to engage in this or that undertaking. We must not suppose that there is a violent compulsion as if God dragged them against their will. But in a wonderful and inconceivable manner, he regulates all the movements of men so that they still have the exercise of their will. This is compatibilism. Look at verse 16. Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. So both kings, both the king and soldiers, would be judged by God. This is federal headship. Not only would the king be judged, but also all who represented him too, all of his soldiers. These men were not just puppets. They, like all people, chose to do what they wanted to do. What they wanted was consistent with their moral nature, and because all of our choices are determined by the condition of our heart, they did what they did. So this, brethren, is compatibilism. Recognizing both God's sovereignty and the free actions of men. That is, choosing to do what they want to do, and they are judged upon that basis. Let me give you some practical application of this all, and then we'll be finished. Number one, notice, we must give God the glory that he deserves as the sovereign king of the universe. That's something that should just be the case with all of us. That's something that should be the case with our church. We give glory to God as the sovereign king, and we recognize him as such. A.W. Pink defines sovereignty in this way in his work on the attributes of God. Quote, The sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy. Being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him. So his own word expressly declares, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46.10 Also, Lorraine Bettner, in his book from 1936, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, wrote this. We can have no adequate appreciation of this world order until we see it as one mighty system through which God is working out his plan. He directs the course of history, even down to its minutest details. So we are to recognize this, and we are to worship God, and praise God for that. Secondly, we have to ask, can a sovereign God predetermine whatever comes to pass, yet hold men responsible for their evil deeds, which they loved, 
while also using those evil actions to judge the wicked and bring about the salvation and ultimate blessing of his people. Can God do that? He's powerful enough to do it. And does he have the right to? Absolutely. Because he's the potter and we're the clay. See, we have the view of God up here, we're down here. If we begin to go like this, we begin to think that's not fair. But we have a biblical view of God and the creature. Then we understand how this is good. Listen to Genesis 15, verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Joseph's brothers were guilty of evil, yet God used their evil actions for good. This gives the ultimate answer for why there is evil in the world. Why did God allow evil in the world? One of those reasons is he chose to use the sinful acts of men for his ultimate salvation of his people and to display his glory in judging sin. Matthew 18, 7. Jesus said, For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. In other words, it's inevitable. It's so ordained by counsel and foreknowledge of God. Don't ever use it for the salvation of his people. It was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. The ones who killed Christ did so because they wanted to. Their intentions were evil. Their actions were evil. God would judge them for those evil actions. But God so ordained it would take place and he uses it to perform his will. Acts 4, 27 and 28. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom, the, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now think about all these people. I heard James White use this example before. Now Herod was crazy. I mean, all these people had different motives. Herod was just nuts. Pontius Pilate was a politician who was a coward. So that's why he did what he did. The Gentiles, the Romans, well, they were used to murdering people, putting people to death all the time. That's just something they did. And the Jews wanted Christ murdered because he exposed their hypocrisy. You see, all these four different groups, different men and different groups, had different motives in killing Christ. But all their motives were evil. But all of it was whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. All those evil actions were foreordained by God. And God would judge these sinners for it and accomplish his perfect will through it. This is the way that it is. No one can then make an excuse and say that he or she is simply obeying God when they comply with their sinful passions. Nobody can say that. Nobody can say, well, I'm predetermined to do this anyway. And therefore I can do it. This is because our own wicked hearts lead us into sin. And also because God has both a secret will of decree, of which we are not conscious of what it is, not aware of it. And he also has a revealed will, which is his law, in which he demands from us voluntary obedience, which we must yield to. So if somebody says, I can go ahead and live this way, God has so determined it. No, you don't know God's secret. You don't ultimately know what he has foreordained comes to pass 
throughout time. But God has given you his revealed will, his law, and he demands and commands that you obey that law. You don't, you will be judged for it. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things, that's his secret will, belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Somebody ever asks you who are the elect, who you know, is that person like? We don't know. We have no way of knowing what God's secret will is. But we know what his revealed will is, as it is given to us in his law and in his word. Finally, last practical point. <clears throat> Objection and a denial of sovereignty some may give because it is said that God will not force someone to believe. Some will say, I just can't believe this because God would never force a person to believe in him. You must decide by your own free will to believe. God will not force you to love him. God will not force you to obey him. He leaves that to you. But in reality, that's such sayings are missing the whole point. You see, we are not regenerate. We are regenerated. We're made new creatures because of the internal operations of God's Spirit. The one who has been granted spiritual life now acts freely, and he wants to repent. He wants to believe, and he seeks to do God's revealed will. In this miraculous work of God, there is not external coercion. It's not as if God is forcing somebody to obey him, forcing somebody to love. Not at all. That's missing the whole point. It's a miraculous work of God, not external coercion. Even where internal power is exerted, the regeneration of one is not, is not faced, the person who's regenerated is not faced to do what he does not want to do. Rather, God created a new will, which is in accord with the will of God. God forces nobody to love him. God forces nobody to obey him that doesn't want to. He will just let them go. But when he regenerates a dead sinner, gives him spiritual life, renews the will, then the sinner wants to love God, wants to obey God, and wants to follow his revealed will. So there's a biblical answer to that objection, of course. The believer, at the same time, let's not forget, he really, or she really, repented. Willingly exercises faith in Christ. At the same time, he was predestined to do so. So there again is compatibilism. Those who were once dead and quickened by grace really believe. Let me just end by going to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Let's just look at a, three verses there just to see these different aspects of this in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 5 makes it clear, those who were once dead, actually, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2 verse 5, those who were once dead were quickened by grace who become believers. Look, even when we were dead in sins, hath, that is, God hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. So in grace, when we were spiritually dead, God worked in us, God performed a miracle to give us spiritual life. At this then, as a result of that, we believe, but look back at chapter 1, verse 13. 
in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed. You see that? So, the sinner that has been made alive really exercises faith. He chooses to believe. He does so because God has given him a new nature. And then finally, notice chapter 1, verse 5. Those who believe were predestined to do so by the good pleasure of God. Chapter 1, verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure again of his will. That is God's will. So brethren, I hope this is a, a benefit as we look at these theological truths. Compatibilism, God's sovereignty, man making decisions, really repenting, really believing. Again, we are finite creatures. We'll never grasp this completely. But there's enough information in Scripture to give us a sound understanding. Recognizing God's sovereignty, recognizing our responsibility, and how both God's sovereignty human responsibility exists. Theologically speaking, this is monergism, Calvinism, Augustinianism. Again, I would believe, and I would at least say, the right balance. Taking all of the scriptural data together concerning both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You get off of that, you get a little imbalanced, you go this way, and you deny God's sovereignty in many areas of life and in world action, uh, world happenings. You tip over this way and recognize God's sovereignty and fail to understand human responsibility and his responsibility, for example, to repent and to believe. Then oftentimes we get very unbiblical. We don't see our, our responsibility in proclaiming the gospel and doing those things that God commands us to do. Both are there in Scripture. Both are there together. And that is a correct, having a correct biblical understanding and having purity in our doctrine. May it lead to holiness in our lives as well. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have so given us, chosen to give us your holy word. It is a lamp to our feet, Lord. It is a light to our path. Without it, we are just lost. We would be enslaved to our wrong thoughts that come from our sinful hearts, sinful minds. And tonight, we have looked at some issues we know that many in, in the body of Christ would not necessarily agree with. But at the same time, we, we just strive to look at the Word and see everything that your Word teaches. And so... We pray, help us to have a right understanding of these things in such a way that it would not just be uh, satisfying to our intellectual curiosity, but rather that it would give us a right view, and that it would be so practical as we give you glory and we worship you as the sovereign king that you are, as we trust you knowing that you are in complete control, and as we seek to do those things that you command us to do, not by our own power, by your power, by your grace. Give us that balance. And we do pray as a church that we would be pure in doctrine, holy in our lives, and that through it, that you might be glorified. Please hear our prayers tonight. We thank you for the gathering of the saints, for bringing us together. May you be glorified through our time. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord.